Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Good morning, Corey. Morning. How's life in Idaho? It is the same. It's good. Really? Yeah, we're we're not having a winter yet. It's cold. We're getting winter winter temperatures, but no moisture for a long time. Yeah, we have no snow on the ground here. And I I live south of Bozeman in the foothills, and that's like the snow trap of the Gallatin Valley. And I have no snow in my yard. Yeah. Yeah. I got a lot of dog turds. My neighbors must they, they sick their dog over to my yard. Hey, go go poop in Randy's yard. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure so, that that's a good thing. It's not I, a good thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go talk to my neighbor and say, all right, I love your dogs, man. And if they want to poop in my yard, that's fine. But this spring, I hope you're gonna clean it up. Yeah, it might be easier to clean up now than in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking speaking of neighbors' dogs, well, mm-hmm. me being a neighbor, we just got a new puppy. You did? Yeah. What'd you get? Well, we uh, so we had a blue healer. I bought for well, I bought for my wife. I bought uh, and gave it to my wife on Valentine's Day, the first year we were married, and he oh. died probably five years ago. And just you know, I mean, with our schedule and. Us going all the time, it's been hard to, to justify having a dog, especially a puppy. So yep. the kids, though, have been relentless. And we gave them you know, an incentive, said if all three of them got 4.0s in school at the same time, we would buy a dog, thinking that would work. And that seems to just drive their grades lower. but we uh my daughter found one a while back on craigslist and sent me a picture of it and it was half lab and half border collie and i thought it was a cute little puppy and you know i didn't really look into that puppy necessarily but i started doing some research on that breed of dog and was liking what i was finding and oh. I ended up doing searching for a black lab border collie mix and found one, found a litter, and they had a male and a female left. So we surprised the kids and took them to look at them, and they got out, and we uh, we bought a female black lab border collie mix. And wow. the, the, the appealing part to me was the size. They don't get as big as a lab. Mm-hmm. The nose, they have incredible noses. The intelligence, they're incredibly easy to train. And I saw a picture of one with a shed antler in its mouth, and I was sold. Uh, I knew there had to be a motive. There there was a a side motive for sure. (laughs) So we are are training Coda to be a shed dog, and she is doing incredibly well at, what is she, 11 weeks now? Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a good uh, disruption to normal behavior in your house because if it's like most pups, well, maybe you got the black lab part out of it <laughs> because I had a male black lab and then I had a female chocolate lab. The female chocolate lab loved garden hoses, and the male chocolate lab or male black lab 
like to chew on anything until it was about a year and a half old. Shoes, uh, the stock of your shotgun, the, the butt of your shotgun, uh, couch. Uh, yeah, the list goes on and on. My, my female chocolate lab ate a, ate a rug one day. <laughs> and so I had to take her to the vet. They had to do surgery because of these synthetic rugs. Obviously, they can't digest it. My dog's about ready to die. So, yeah. yeah just add another 500 a month to the household budget. Yeah, no, unfortunately it didn't breed out the the lab chewing. She likes to chew on everything from your pinky finger to the side of a coffee table to anything. So huh. she's not as bad as our blue healer. Our blue healer never outgrew chewing. And it was, you know, same thing. We, mm. we tried and tried everything we could. And we just finally had to basically chew proof everything that we we put him up against and we had a kennel, a big uh, dog run on the side of our house and he chewed the siding off of our house Ooh. when he was like nine years old. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he was a year old and doing it. He chewed even when he got older. So, huh. well, I thought you were going to tell me you found out you got a blood trailing dog or something because uh, I've, <laughs> I've become friends with a guy named Damon Bungard who has a, a uh, they call it the blood trailing dog association where if you have a wounded animal, these really highly trained dogs will go and help you recover your animal. Yep. But now I realize you've got even a better motive in mind. That's your shed antler hunting. I, I, I have two elk antlers hanging in my shop that are sheds. And the only reason they came out of the Wyoming desert with me is I couldn't find a tree to hang on. I was going to say, I saw a video on YouTube of you a few days ago, and you're standing in your shop with a shed antler draped over your shoulder. And I thought, wait, something's wrong here because Randy doesn't carry shed antlers. And if that ended up in his shed, there's there's a reason for it. Yeah. So I've already promised them to one of my CPA clients. He said, boy, I'd like to have a shed antler someday. I'm like, you know what? I got two of them for you. Come out to my shop. So he's not come out there yet, but they're they're for him. I have, I have no use for him. But uh, I'm glad you got, you know, you know, now if you just get a couple llamas to pack your shed antlers, I think you, you'll be set. I've already, I've texted Bo a couple times and expressed my interest. I haven't heard back. So I'm, uh, you know, it's, mm. I, don't, I don't know. Well, we'll probably be taking llamas shed hunting with us this spring. I don't know if I will be an owner of them or not, but yeah. they uh, they proved their worth. Yeah, that that gets to one of the questions I was thumbing through all. I had, last night I had way too much time, and I was trying to catch up on my. I'm embarrassed to say how many emails uh, <laughs> while I've been on the road, but I sorted them by uh, Elk Doc Podcast and. Some people ask, do we, they know that you're a, an avid shed antler hunter. They asked if you use that to, in any way where it's like a scouting tool that you somehow implement into your fall hunting strategies. Yeah, so actually we can, uh, that leads into to my fall rifle hunt pretty well because we uh, we found a new shed hunting spot. Well, not a new, we'd, we'd known about it, but we took the plunge and went shed hunting in a spot this last spring that would have been good. It was good. We went in early and we saw a lot of elk and we fly, you know, Tyler, the guy I share an office with, uh, and I split the costs and we get in a plane and we fly for, for shed hunting 
usually about the middle of March and just kind of get a tab on where the bulls are because the bulls are separated from the cows that time of year. And so we'll fly and, you know, we go over our kind of our normal areas we like to hit and just make sure, okay, yeah, the elk are still in there. Maybe they're up a couple ridges this year. The snow line's lower, so they're down lower and just get an idea of where they're at. So when we go in there, we aren't searching for the elk, we're searching for the antlers. And we, uh, We've, we've flown over this place before, and it's always intrigued us, but it's a bit of a haul to get in there. And we took the plunge this spring and, and went in there, but we went early, and all the bulls pretty much were still packing, except for two or three that just looked like dinosaurs. And I actually glassed up a fresh antler, I think it was March 17th, laying on a ridge and took a picture of it through my binoculars with my phone, and it was a giant, but it was too far. We were in there, had maybe an hour and a half until dark, and it probably would have taken me three hours to hike over there. But then we were several miles into this area and had to go back out. So I said, no problem. I can't believe anybody would be in here and, and pick it up. So we left it. And when I went back in, it was gone as well as oh. as well as three or four white sheds that I had spotted on that same hillside. They had been cleaned out. But I still, I took my boys in there on that trip and we packed out, gosh, I don't remember, but I think probably 12 or 13 fresh elk sheds and a handful of older, you know, year or two old ones. And that's after a couple other people had been in there and, and really creamed it. And I talked to one of the guys, he'd found quite a few sheds, but anyway, that leads into, I saw all those bulls in there and I started doing some e-scouting and realized there's really nowhere for those elk to go. You know, they, they, they can't migrate in there from very far away. And I know a couple other winter grounds where there are elk that maybe would migrate out of mountains into those areas. But this specific area, once you hit the top of the mountain, it's just, it's a wasteland. And I just couldn't believe that they would travel uphill and then drop back down into this area in order to winter there. So my thought was, we're going to, we're going to archery hunt there and should be able to get into some bulls. And we did archery hunt in there a day or two. In fact, Dale went with us one of the days. And uh, that's when he said he was never going back in there. And if we were going back in there, we needed a new camera guy. And <laughs> so, so we didn't. But we managed to buy leftover non-resident elk tags in Idaho last year. And we got them for the rifle season in this area. And so a second elk tag. Yep. So we went do that. And you, before anyone gets all fired up, <laughs> you residents of Idaho can do that. So can non-residents. So can non-residents. Really? Yeah. Non-residents can buy an oh. extra tag and it's good. Like the, the tags that we bought, we got one for our tree season. That was an A tag. That's good for any elk, bull, cow, any size. And then the rifle hunt is good for any antlered elk, the, the tag that we got. So Hmm. Okay. We, uh, la you know, the last two years, the fishing games actually sold out of the non-resident elk tags, so there haven't been leftover ones. But we uh, we found a little loophole last year where a couple leftover tags got added to a pool that was available if you were on the ball and uh, <laughs> ready for it. And as soon as those tags were added, we uh, we were there waiting, and we ended up buying wow. buying two of them. Cool. Yeah. Anyhow, oh, so you know, typically we aren't. We we hunted Montana last year with you on that rifle hunt. And that's really the first time I've extended my season into October or November. 
Mm-hmm. And this year we thought, hey, we've got rifle tags in Idaho, so it's another another week of hunting. But the real dilemma was how do we get in there with camp and stay for a week? And then how do we pack elk out of there? And mm-hmm. uh, we did a podcast a while ago with our friend Bo Beatty, who just happens to own a whole bunch of llamas. Yeah. And uh, that proved to be the solution we were looking for. So we packed, yeah. we packed up camp on four llamas and mm-hmm. uh, we hiked into this area and we set up camp and we we tended llamas and hunted with llamas and packed with llamas for the next five days. <laughs> uh, cool. And it was wow. a lot like it was a lot like the drive home from the hospital with our firstborn child. There's a, a sense of anxiety and fear and unknown and mm-hmm. feeling like you aren't prepared. And I definitely went through that taking llamas because it was <laughs> it was me and Donnie and cameraman John and we had nobody that had any experience with llamas other than I petted them last year at at camp when Bo used them to pack out Donnie's elk. Yep. So that was my only experience. So Bo actually drove them up to our house and delivered them for me and gave us about an hour training on how to put the saddles on them and what their names were. And I took pictures of the saddles on them because the names were on the saddles. So I'd remember their names. (laughs) It's a good thing I did that because I would not have remembered which one was which, but by the end of the week, they uh, they certainly have personalities, and you end up with your favorites, and you end up with labels of not heads for the yeah. ones that are not heads. And it uh, hands down, though, for that kind of a hunt, there's not a better way that I could think of to to hunt elk. Yeah. So this all started with your shed hunting. This all started with shed hunting. This area, we would have never, I mean, I've thought about going in there, but seeing all the elk that were in there in the spring, the size of some of the bulls that were in there in the spring, I just thought they have to still be in there in the fall. Yeah. And unfortunately, they weren't. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, there were, but there were some elk in there, obviously. There were some, and, I, and there may have been more in there, but we, we didn't see another person. Uh, we were in there five days, never saw another person. There was an outfitter that had been in there, but they weren't in there when we were in there. Um, we didn't see a lot of sign, though. There was some archery sign, you know, three-quarters of the way up the mountain, which the reason that that it's not just hard to access but hard to hunt, we had to camp down at the bottom because that's where the water was. Yep. And it was 2,500 vertical feet each day to get up to elk so we we left the llamas just because there was no water up on the mountain and we Mm -hmm. left them at camp and we had to come down every night and go up every morning and so i shot my elk on day four so we had made four trips up the mountain 2500 feet and 2500 feet just to get to the the elevation where the elk were uh there were a couple days we hit 3000 feet in vertical elevation and we shot the elk at, I think it was 2,800 feet above camp. So get wow. this, get this. And I'll, I'll tell more of the story, but I, wanna, I want to uh, throw this out there. We shoot the elk. We don't have llamas with us, obviously. We're hiking each day without llamas. We shoot the elk, and the elk drops, and we go over to it and take some pictures. And I'm thinking, okay, there's three of us. We've got our packs. It's going to be heavy because it was a good-sized elk and, and big body, big mountain bull. And they're going to be heavy. But we've packed out an elk in one trip with three of us 
multiple times before and it's not fun, but it's all downhill. And yes, it's steep downhill, but at least we aren't climbing uphill with the load. So I, in my mind, I'm preparing thinking, okay, I'll take a, a hind and a front. That's probably going to be 110, 120 pounds. Plus I'm going to have to pack the antlers. Plus I have my gear that's probably 25 pounds from the day. And I'm thinking, okay, I can do it. Just one time we, I've got trekking poles. We'll do it. Cameraman John says, I want to get some content of us packing elk with llamas. I will walk back to camp and bring two llamas back up to load the elk on the llamas and then pack out with the llamas. Cameraman John dropped 2,800 feet in vertical elevation, and it was probably Whoa. three and a half miles back to camp. Got two llamas, and again, John, John didn't do any. I mean, he didn't saddle up the llamas. He didn't. We showed him pictures on our cell phones up on the mountain of what it looked like to saddle them up. He went down, picked out the two we told him to bring, saddled them up, brought them up there, and was back, climbed the 2,800 feet and three and a half miles back up to us. And we loaded three quarters of the elk on two llamas. I think I had uh, the antlers and probably 25 pounds of meat. And then John and Donnie each had probably 30 or 35 pounds of meat in addition to, to gear that they had um, hiking out of there. So John was the, the hero on that trip. Whoa. I hope you gave him a big bonus. No, I just told him, you know, him going down and doing that just prevented him from having to haul the biggest portion of the elk off the mountain. So wow. he did capture some really cool pictures of us with the llamas and packing and, you know, right at dark. We literally got to the ridge at dark. I think we got back to camp around midnight. Um, those llamas were incredible. Yeah. Wow. That's that's a way to thin out the competition. Yeah. You you would have had no competition from me if we were in camp and you said, I'm going to climb up there and shoot a bull at 2,800 feet. <laughs> I'd say, you know what, Corey, I'll have dinner ready when you get back. Well, you remember I did invite you to go with us. I know. Yeah. And you used the key term, terms, steep and deep. Yeah. And I said to you, no, Corey, I'm going to be busy that week. <laughs> I'm trying to save my marriage. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. But I just, you know, John didn't have any experience at all with llamas. My experience was a one-hour training from Bo, and we did not have a single negative issue with llamas. Like nothing. Not even, yeah. not anything. You know, I, I formed a great friendship with one of them. Uh, Johnny is my, he, if, if Johnny's ever available when I need a llama, he is at the top of my request list. Yeah. Just, well, the, before anyone gets too carried away with this, the, the ticket of what you did, and there's a few guys like Bo who have highly trained pack llamas. <laughs> that are bred for mountain packing, that get a lot of exercise and have done this. It's not their quote-unquote first rodeo. And that makes all the difference in the world because you, you will hear these stories out there of, I wouldn't take one of those spitting, stubborn, stinky things in the woods for anything. Well, they probably had a pasture llama that they pulled out of their brother-in-law's sheep flock and thought it was going to be ready to go pack 100 pounds of elk. Yep. So... Getting them from the right person and making sure they're highly fit, trained athletes is is key. 
So just, just to give you an idea, when, when we came back down the mountain, we were on a ridge that was, you know, it was a gradual descent. We dropped probably a thousand feet in elevation on this ridge going mile, mile and a half, probably a mile and a half. And we hit where we had to choose to either stay on the ridge and go left where it dropped off rather steeply or drop straight off to the right. And when we got there, it's dark and I have a pretty good headlamp and I shined it down and thought, there is no way in the world I'm going down this, <laughs> let alone, let alone a llama with, you know, we had 80 pounds on Johnny. No, uh, Johnny was less. Johnny had 70. I think uh, Tokyo had 80. And I'm looking at it going, there is no way that I don't trust myself to go down. it. If that llama even stumbles, it will roll 1,500 vertical feet to the bottom. Yeah. And so we didn't. But as we turned to the left there, John said, right, here's where I came up. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I just, I turned off the trail down there at the mouth of the creek and came straight up this. He took those two llamas up it, and he's like, they did phenomenal. They didn't even balk at it. They walked right up this mountain. They followed me everywhere. They didn't tug. They didn't pull. He's like, they were, you know, they were, <laughs> they had worked. They were out of breath a few times. We had to stop. But he came straight up that mountain with those llamas. And when we went down, we went down the other way, which was still, there were times that I'm looking at it going, you know, it's not dangerous, but with load on your back, if you fall, you might roll a couple times and have to grab onto something to stop you. Those llamas were pushing us, like not nudging us like in a bad way, but they were they were totally fine. When I would slow down, think maybe I'd take this a little bit slower. They're like, why are you slowing down? We're good. Let's keep going. <laughs> it was it was so impressive. Uh, they are. They are so impressive. I when not. I, I told the story on a prior podcast about my Colorado elk hunt, first rifle hunt, went back in, you know, took us seven hours to get back there. I think we were seven and a half miles. And we had four llamas, me, two camera guys, and it was incredible how comfortable we could be because llamas. Yep. And then when I shot a bull, I... I thought deadfallen llamas is a train wreck. <laughs> and it could be at times, but they are so good at picking their way. If if you can step over it, you know, maybe slightly below your crotch, they are such athletes. They just like bloop and they're over it, even with 100 pounds on their back. And uh, so we extracted my bull out of that deadfall. And then the next day, they carried. Uh, well, it took two and a half llamas for the bull and the antlers and all the meat. And then we carried our camps out and they carried some of the extra camp gear. But it separates the competition, no doubt about it. Yeah. And uh, so you're, you're going to rent some for antler. Uh, what do you guys call it? Antler hunting? Yeah. Antler you know what? When I was younger and, and I grew up in a logging town, so everybody called it horn hunting. You know, and that's, okay. we were we were horn hunters, and we found three horns today. And you know, obviously, elk and deer grow antlers, not horns. But it was just mm -hmm. the community I grew up in, and the way we we did it. But as I've gotten a, a little bit older, um, I've I've switched. So we do we antler hunt now, and we found okay. we find antlers, and it's probably the the correct terminology to, to use. 
Okay. Oh, I wasn't sure what you call it. It's addicting. I, That's and you and I we we talked with Tyler Crockett what year and a half ago or so on the podcast had him on and he and I shared our yeah. our addiction to it. But it's just and we're we're already planning trips for next year and knowing that we have llamas we're taking a base camp in and we're setting up a comfy camp and we, the good news is in the spring the elk are all within 1500 feet of of where we're going to camp so they come down the mountain a little bit farther and we won't have to you know going up and down each day is not going to be near as taxing as it was elk hunting but yeah well maybe i'll come with if you'll let me shoot the black bears <laughs> there are black bears in there but it's uh it's still steep and deep Oh, how will that? I've shot enough bears. I don't need to hurt myself. That's yeah. There's there's easier places to find a bear. <laughs> uh, so back to the original question. In some places, I suspect where you find shed antlers probably does have a correlation to a hunting strategy for the fall. Yes, and that's you know it really comes down to. Where are they migrating from and knowing where the the majority of the elk are coming from? Because they do have winter grounds and there will be herds, multiple herds that converge on these winter grounds from different areas. They may even be in different units, you know, where they are during the the hunting season to where they go on winter grounds. But if you know where they're coming from and you know where they go, there can be an advantage. And in some places like this area we were at, there are some resident elk that live 500 feet in elevation above where they where they shed their antlers. And yep. so, you know, if you do antler hunt and you happen to find a really big one or a unique one or a lot of them, there there could be some correlation to where they will be in the fall and, and your hunting plan. Yeah. I, I talked to my friends in uh, eastern Montana, central Montana, some guys I know in uh, central Wyoming, where the elk really aren't that migratory because you're not talking about big elevation differences and they find some whopper antlers. And for them, it's not so much about where they're going to find the elk in the fall, but to know that, Hey, there's some really good bulls in this drainage or that ridge or whatever. So they use it for that. And, uh, they always ask me, you want to come out and and join us? No, not really. (laughs) Yeah, I can watch I can watch the grass grow here on my porch. You are missing out. There's nothing like watching grass grow and wildflowers sprout in the backcountry in the spring when there's a white tip of an antler poking up through that newly sprouted green grass and wildflowers. Uh, do you ever sell any of them? Yeah. Yeah, we sell almost oh, okay. all of them. So we Oh, okay. Yeah, it's uh, my kids. In fact, my boys when I took them in there, we shed hunted one day. So we hiked in the evening before our whole family went in and did a little bivy hunt. And the boys and I went down and climbed up the mountain and shed hunted and got back to camp at dark. And the next day we loaded up and, and hiked out of there. But they each made, I think, $200 that day off of the antlers they had. And, uh, you know, I found probably twice as many as they did. Uh, well, probably as many as, as they did combined. Um, so yeah, we sell them and it pays for the gas and buys us a Hmm. new pair of boots or a new backpack or something, but yeah, well, maybe I'm going to have to take up shed antler hunting, Corey, but I see there's an awful lot of competition for it. So I I don't think I, I can run the hills fast enough to compete with some of the guys who I know do it yourself included that's the truth it's getting especially this year with covid and everything this spring there were more people 
out there crawling around than I've ever seen. And yeah, just hoping that the whole pandemic's over so people have to go back to work this spring and can't be out there yeah. picking up sheds. There you go. Corey's all for the vaccines. So exactly. got to go back to work. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm going to take this another step further then. And it's kind of my own question. Are there, uh, like, in Montana, most of the elk herds that I hunt, it doesn't do you much good to scout in the spring or in the summer because the elk are going to be way further back in way different places come September and October. Are there other things you're doing in the spring or summer or whatever months that are fun to get out and do and maybe just good family things that are adding to your knowledge bank that you're going to apply come hunting season yeah absolutely you know and that and that's you nailed it right there so many of the western states the mountain elk migrate so far that it really you know you can't scout them in the spring and even the summer like you mentioned they're going back up and they're going as far up the mountain as they can but when the rut starts the cows are still down where they had the calves and they don't go as far up the mountain so those bulls leave that summer range and they go down looking for the cows and so you might have you know elk on trail camera all summer bulls on trail camera all summer and you go up there all excited to hunt at opening weekend and you don't see a single elk and there hasn't been a fresh elk track for two weeks there and you don't see another elk in there all season but what i did find was some of those areas like that those higher areas we found elk in rifle season this year in those summer areas and I had not correlated that before, and I don't know that there is a, a huge correlation, but some of those areas where I had seen elk this summer, where they disappeared during the fall, and we knew they would disappear, we weren't expecting to find them there. But when we went back to the areas where we expected to find them, they weren't there. And as we went farther up the mountain, we found them back in their summer area after the rut. And then, of course, they dropped down from there and migrate out once the snow starts and who knows where they go from there. But um, so, I mean, we're, we're spending time um, just learning area, even though there aren't going to be elk in the area during the summer, we'll go and camp and go hike and look for signs of wallows or rubs from last season to say, okay, here's another pocket that we haven't hunted before where it looks like the elk rut. Um, so I'm not looking for elk necessarily in the summer, but I'm looking for signs of previous rut. Um hmm we'll go and, you know, just explore new country areas that I've never even been to. I was like, I've always wanted to go up there and see. And uh, so we'll take a family camping trip and go up there and maybe, maybe an overnight hiking trip and do some fishing in a lake. And, you know, as we're hiking in and out, my eyes are scouring for rubs and wallows from the previous season and making mental note of that or marking it on my mapping system. And so, yeah, there's, there's definitely some value in spending time in elk country in the spring and summer, but you have to know what you're looking for and, and what's realistic to find and how it's going to help you in the fall. Yeah. Well, for me, wolf hunting is gives me a chance or a time or a reason to be out near the wintering elk because the wolves are near the wintering elk here in Montana. And one thing I'm always amazed at is Montana it's almost like we hate elk as hard as we hunt them. <laughs> we start hunting them in August with what's called shoulder seasons. The idea of shoulder season being the period before the general season on one end and the period of the general season on the other. And then we give a, a six weeks of archery, give them 
give the elk five days off and then we go after him for five days of rifle and then we usually do a month or two of cow hunting on the other end of the shoulder seasons but with all that pressure when i'm out wolf hunting i'm still astounded at the quality and age class that i find in a lot of units in montana and that's what so i'll make note of that because i've got a whole lot of places where i go when i have time to wolf hunt and i'll i'll make mental note of wow look at the quality of bulls that made it through hunting season here i think i'm gonna go do some archery elk hunting over here not obviously not where i'm seeing them in december and january but i know where those elk come from i i know all right this wintering area these elk come 12 miles from whatever drainage it is or whatever mountain and so it does impact where i decide to go hunt a little bit um not in a specific sense, but more in a general sense. Yep. And, uh, I don't know. I think it's just the hunter mentality that even when I'm driving down the road, my wife doesn't like to ride with me. She's like, you're always looking somewhere, looking for some critter or something. Yep. I think every time I'm on the road, I'm like, oh, is that a burn up there? Or, <laughs> what's, what's going on out there? You know, hear the rumble strip over there. And she's like, watch where you're going you want to you want to drive in fact she knows that i'm such an antelope junkie that she will not let me drive through wyoming if she's in the car she's like if we're going through wyoming i'm driving because you've almost killed us four times so i think it's this us as hunters we're always taking advantage of whatever we're doing to try increase our knowledge that might help us in hunting. Just looking for a hand up. Yeah, I mean, a leg up on the competition and the elk are out there. They're learning every day. They're, they're living it. And the yeah. time we spend, the better off we're going to be. Yeah. So I got to ask you that you, you talked about how Idaho, how residents or non-residents could possibly buy a second tag in Idaho for both deer or for elk. Well, Idaho this year, Changed the allocation, not the allocation. Yeah, they did. So they they put a cap on certain zones, um, and they raised the fee of both the hunting license and the elk tag. And those tags went on sale December first, and someone told me they sold out within like a day or two. (laughs) Is that true? Well, there's some truth. So last last year, we started hearing some buzz that residents were unhappy because non-residents were taking over the state of Idaho and that they were, the, you know, non-residents had increased so much in the last few years that it was just hunting was no good here anymore. Well, the, hmm. the reality of that is the number of non-resident elk tags in Idaho has been capped forever. Like that's what I was going to say. Twelve thousand eight hundred and fifteen. You got it. Yep, and it has not changed. Yeah. So, so how how does that get blamed on non-residents? Well, non-residents, you know, the, the tag allocation hasn't changed, but I in two thousand six, you could buy a leftover non-resident tag. So if that quota of twelve thousand eight hundred had not been filled, they kept track of how many non-resident tags were still available and a resident could go and pay the non-resident price and have a a second tag or pay it again and have a third tag or pay it again and have a fourth tag. And non-residents could do the same. 
So you could literally, there was no cap. I, after a couple of years of that, I think they they realized that that wasn't a good plan. So they limited it. You could only buy one extra leftover non-resident tag, whether you were a resident or a non-resident. So, you know, what is it? $416 it's been in the past for a, for a non-resident elk tag. I pay yep. the $36.50 as a resident for mine. And if there's a leftover one after August 1st, then I could go and pay the $416.75 and have a second tag that was good for, you know, I could buy it for an antlered hunt and I could buy it for the same unit as I was archery hunting in for another archery tag. I could buy it for a rifle tag in a completely separate unit on the other side of the state. You know, as long as there were uh, unlimited quota non-resident tags in that unit, and as long as there was the, the overall quota for non-residents hadn't been met. Last year, so I, that's just kind of, kind of the backstory to say that until three years ago, there were always leftover non-resident tags on August 1st. And so, you know, even in the hunting season, there were times that I would shoot an elk on September 10th and realize, hey, we still have a couple days to hunt. I'm going to go buy another tag and go down to the Walmart and buy another leftover non-resident elk tag. At, yeah, at the non-resident price. At the non-resident price. Two okay. years ago, uh, they sold out, I want to say August 16th, 17th, something like that. So a few non, or a few residents were able to buy the non-resident leftover tags after that August 1st deadline. And, you know, we, two weeks later, they were all sold out. So those of us who procrastinated that year, we're going to wait until September, didn't get an opportunity. This past year, yeah. all of the non-resident tags were sold out in June. So there were no okay. opportunities for anyone to buy a, a second tag in Idaho this last year. During all of that going on, fishing games, hearing from residents and non-residents ruin, ruining hunting, and to a degree... There were certain areas where maybe that was true because there were a lot of units that non-residents were not capped. And gotcha. so that 12,800 cap, there was nobody saying, we're going to give 100 non-resident tags to this unit and 50 over here. Literally, a, a good portion of that 12,800 could have ended up in the exact same unit. Now, it didn't okay. happen like that, but there are probably some areas where it was more likely to see non-residents and a, and a higher ratio of non-residents there. So what the fishing game decided to do was we are going to raise prices. Yeah, to $651. Yep. So another you know, $250 almost on top of it. So, you know, what's that, a 60% increase in price? Pretty, Something like pretty that. steep increase. Yeah. And then in units where there were no quotas for non-residents previously, they looked at some number and some percentage and created a, a quota. And so there is a limited number of elk tags for non-residents by zone or unit in the state of Idaho. Okay. But the total number of 12,800 tags is still the non-resident cap it's just in each zone there could be i'll call it sub quotas or a sub cap correct, correct? yeah okay and i'm not a hundred percent sure um if they kept it the same i'm just i'm looking here to see yes the quota is twelve thousand eight hundred and fifteen. 
Yeah. And as of today, which this opened two weeks ago, there's still 4,000 non-resident tags available in the state of Idaho. So they didn't, you know, all the non-resident tags didn't sell out, but several of the more popular units, uh, those quotas within those zones did sell out. Okay. Huh. Well, I mean, it's kind of like a game of sport in the West that you blame everything on non-residents, right? Totally. Some guy sent me a pretty scathing email about quit telling non-residents to come to Montana. (laughs) They're they're ruining my hunting spot. (laughs) And so I said, uh, I, I, you know, I'm sensitive to that. You know, I, I've got more people in my hunting spots, quote unquote, my spot. Uh, I don't have any spots. I said, but they all have resident license plates when I'm at the trailhead just about. Because in Montana, we've had the number of non-residents capped for, boy, a long time, at 17,000. I can't remember when we, it's been so long. Um, So I'm not sure where all these non-residents are skirting the 17,000 number cap here in Montana to be ruining all of our hunting. Uh, But when I look at the, the numbers... Montana has, I'm looking at population growth. Montana has, since 1990, an extra, let's see, 270,000 residents (laughs) over the last 30 years. And let's say that 20% of them hunt just like 20% of the, the existing population hunts. That's... That, that's an extra 54,000 resident hunters in the hills. But it, but down at the bar or the coffee shop, you got to blame the non-residents. Totally. Because they aren't there to defend themselves. Well, not only that, but they're just a, a, a inferior pawn in the whole game, right? I mean, yeah. they're just... They don't, they don't get to vote. Yeah. They get to pay more. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they we get to kick them around as residents yep. um, but you know how much your state's population has increased since 1990 uh, I don't know but I know it's significant 780,000 people since 1990 Yeah, and if even 10% of those people hunt that's 78,000 new resident hunters in the hills yep and Colorado their population since 1990 has increased by 2.4 million. Is there anywhere that's decreased? No. <laughs> Wyoming has the smallest increase since 1990. And if you've ever been to Wyoming in the spring or the winter, you'll know why. Yeah. Because even as, what, as enticing as it is to be a resident and be able to hunt all the species there and, and good hunting, I don't think I could handle a winter. It's a, you got to be a tough dude to hang out in the winter in Wyoming when the wind's blowing. Yeah. But if we do the math, let's say Wyoming, they're the lowest increase. 125,000 new residents since 1990. If 10% of those hunt, that's 12,500 new resident elk hunters. Just due to, hmm, what do they call it, migration, emigration, immigration, <laughs> whatever. I, I always mix it up. But so I think Wyoming 
I can't remember what the cap is. I think it's like 7,250 or 7,500 non-resident tags in total for elk, general tags plus limited entry tags. So just the growth in residents in the lowest population growth state in the West is more tags, more new resident hunters than there are all the non-resident tags. By double in the lowest yeah. increase. Yeah. So we take, let's just assume, I don't think it's unreasonable in these inner mountain states, at least Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, to assume that 10% of the people haunt. Oh, it's, yeah. That's the reason they're moving here. I think a lot of them is yeah. because of the, the hunting opportunities for residents. Yeah. So in your state, if you apply a 10% number, that's 78,000 new hunters, new resident hunters. Yep. And the the flip side of that is you cap your non-resident elk hunters at 12,815. And it's been so like that since 1990, probably. So Yeah. So that's six times the number of new resident hunters as there are in total since time, you know, however long it's been capped. The increase in resident hunters using a 10% participation rate is resulted in six times as many new resident hunters as is the cap for non-resident elk hunters in Idaho. Yep. Now, I don't even know what the participation rate is in Colorado, but given they smoke some of that funny stuff down there. And, <laughs> and they, they voted they were, to bring wolves in. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we got to, Colorado is the outlier, okay? <laughs> so I don't know what, what percentage to apply. But it's at least less than half. Yeah. So 2.4 million new residents. How many of those are hunters? 3%? 5%? I, I would have to think that it's, yeah, I mean, realistically, yeah. I would think it's probably over 10%, but. Just for yeah. the sake of math and being conservative, three to five percent. Yeah, if you use five percent, that's another hundred and twenty thousand resident hunters in the hills in Colorado. Yep. And then you get to these states in Arizona, Utah, Nevada, where there's a cap on the resident tag numbers because everything's on a limited draw, pretty much. Well, Arizona has increased. 3.6 million new residents since that time. So it's no wonder residents have a harder time drawing tags because if if the number of elk tags allocated each year to manage the herd, and Arizona Game and Fish does a heck of a job adjusting every year, 3.6 million, even if 1% of those hunt, that's another 36,000 applicants for that pool of resident tags crazy then you take nevada which is the second well third so it's arizona colorado nevada utah in terms of total number of increased residents nevada is up 1.88 million people since 1990 and they have such a tight restriction on their elk tags because they just they only have so many elk if five percent of those people hunt that's another 90,000 applicants for those resident Nevada elk tags. And we can just go on and on through all these <laughs> states. My point being that as much as in Montana we want to blame you non-residents, we're blowing smoke when we say that. 
because relative, we've capped you non-residents since Moby Dick was a minnow, <laughs> or we're close to that long. And the increase that I'm seeing are residents. These are resident license plates I'm seeing at the trailhead. And I, you know, you kind of want to grumble like, oh, man, you know, when I started hunting here in 1993, I hardly saw anybody in here. Well, now there's guys from Bozeman and Whitehall and Butte and Kalispell. What's going on? But when I go down to the coffee shop at the Western Cafe, it's like, ah, dang, non-residents, you know, it's, you really don't have any street cred if you aren't blaming the non-residents for something. That and Californians. I mean, that's, that's you blame everything on there. Yep. So I, I hate to interject some fact and data to that comment, comment or that criticism, but that's the reality. We have seen way larger increases in resident numbers than we will ever see in non-resident numbers because every one of these states, with the exception of Colorado's over-the-counter second and third rifle seasons, every one of these states cap non-residents, and some of these states even cap residents. So pretty hard to blame the non-residents when they're already capped. Yep, that's for sure. Wow. (laughs) That's depressing to listen to. You know, and that's... I guess we get a lot of of emails that I see come through for the for the Elk Talk podcast, and several of them we talked about point creep and you know mm-hmm. point systems in the different states, and you know we're talking about Idaho here uh, specifically, and we don't have a point system, and I hope we never do. But I've gotten a lot of emails saying, "What is the solution?" You know, yeah. it just seems like there we're we're backed into a wall, and there is no solution. Somebody's yep. somebody has to quit hunting. Yeah. So I I get the, I get that same comment of you know what's the answer and from a bigger view you know the thirty thousand foot level as they say do we want to figure out point schemes and other elaborate methods to slant favor in front of or, or in favor of the old gray haired guy like me which. If you never work on growing the size of the pie, it's just a fight over a static or smaller pie. And that's where you and I are big fans of the Elk Foundation because they're the ones helping build a bigger elk pie. That is something we can all do to help the opportunity and lessen the competition for tags is to put more elk on the mountain. The pie is bigger. Yep. So, I, I, I mean, I know as population just grows and grows and grows, and habitat shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. We can't we can't grow elk numbers as fast as the population is growing, but we can do as much as we possibly can to mitigate that. That that's one of the tools to offset it, and that's I get off my. My soapbox now. That's not a soapbox. That's a that's a planned platform there. Yeah, I mean, I I'm I'm tired of the notion. So I'm going to get back on my soapbox. <laughs> I'm sick and tired of the notion that we have to fight over a smaller pie. If people spend as much time trying to build a bigger pie, a bigger pool of elk, a larger herd, if they spend as much time doing that as they do on Facebook or on forums 
whining and complaining about woe is me or the world is coming to an end or whatever, you know, whatever's wrong with the state of hunting. If they channel that energy towards conservation efforts, towards habitat, towards volunteering, we could be building a much bigger pool of elk. Preach, Randy. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's the truth, you know, and that's just, and to to Idaho Fishing Games credit, what they're doing wasn't trying to limit non-residents. It was trying to spread Mm -hmm. non-residents out and manage them by by zone which they hadn't done before before it was basically you did have to choose your zone but everybody could choose the same zone so what they did this year was they they just set up a quota by zone so they could manage the distribution of non-resident hunters and you know there's definitely going to be some hunters that say i've hunted this area forever and the tags are all sold out there well there's still four thousand tags left in the state of idaho right now so it's not like anybody's gonna be able to say i can't get my tag they just might not be able to get the tag that they want and and to go there, but there's still hunting available for non-residents in Idaho. And the way the fishing game did it was if there was a high percentage of non-residents, the ratio of non-residents to resident hunters in an area above 15%, they capped it at 15%. So if there Mm -hmm. were, if 25% of the hunters in a specific zone in the past had been non-residents in the future, only 15% could be. Uh, zones that were 10 to 14% non-residents were capped at 10% of that number, and zones with less than 10% were also capped at 10%. So they didn't change the overall number of non-resident hunters. They just distributed them throughout the state. As deer hunters, though, and I know this is the Elk Talk podcast, but just to mention deer hunters in the state of Idaho, because if you buy an elk tag in Idaho, you buy the license, you're coming here. Most of the time there's a deer season going on. So I know a lot of non-residents also bought uh, deer tags. Deer tags. Yep. Deer tags, the the quota hasn't changed. It's 15500 for non-residents. But in the past, you chose either a whitetail tag or a regular tag, and a regular tag was primarily devoted to mule deer hunting. A whitetail tag was primarily dedicated to whitetail hunting, and you could hunt the entire state with a regular deer tag. You just had to follow the different, you know, the different seasons in the different zones, and mm-hmm. the species that was open at the time that fit your tag. Now it's managed by unit, so you have to choose a unit that you're going to hunt in the state of Idaho for deer. Hmm. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, that that's better than going to a limited entry draw for all your deer. Yep, absolutely. Which I think is where they're probably going to go for non-residents, just looking at how the system worked this year. Because this year, you could log in before they started selling the tags. They went on sale at 10 o'clock on December 1st or whatever the time was, you could log in before that and they sent you to a waiting room. And in that waiting room, a virtual waiting room, you were assigned a number. So there were people that Hmm. thought I can buy a tag at 10 o'clock. They log on at 10 o'clock and find out you're number (laughs) 5,120 in the waiting room. And the person who's number one doesn't even get to start until 10 o'clock. And then he gets to choose what unit he wants and what tag and you've got to wait until all of these 5,000 people have gone through and picked their units, of which a lot of times the unit that they want is going to be sold out. So now they have to scramble to find another one. And just the whole process was was a cluster for sure. Huh. 
Well, we still are allowed 10% of your controlled hunts as non-residents. Yep. So that didn't change. So yeah. up to 10%. It's not like there's a separate pool, but we compete with residents for those tags. And once the non-residents get to 10% of that hunt code, you're out. Uh, but yeah. so now, now that I've raised the hackle <laughs> to every resident hunter in the Rocky Mountain West by saying most of your hunting pressure is coming from residents, not non-residents, <laughs> I'm going to now raise the hackles of every non-resident hunter who they're right now they're get they're typing out the email saying Randy and Corey this is federal land we shouldn't be restricted. And that this is where you you might want to go pull out your history book and your little pocket constitution of the United States and understand that in 1842 yeah what's that? Uh, 178 years ago, or 78, yeah, 178 years ago, there was a Supreme Court case, Martin versus Waddell, where the Supreme Court said, in the United States, the wildlife is held in trust by the states for the citizens of that state, no matter whether they live on public or private land. So the state that, owns the, the wildlife. Exactly. They hold it in trust for the citizens of their state. So the fact that Idaho grants even one non-resident hunting permit is one more than they're required to grant. South Dakota doesn't grant any non-resident elk tags. And that's their prerogative. They don't have to. So those of you who want to somehow make a connection that, and I'm not saying we should mess over the non-residents. Because they, I, I'm, I'm all for non-residents coming and hunting and, you know, the, the disparity in fees and percentage of tags. I'm all in favor of that, too. I want each state to do its best for their citizens first and then offer whatever non-resident opportunity they feel is appropriate. And I'll deal with it. But those of you getting ready to send us an email that says, well, it's federal land. We should all have a fair shot at it. No. Let's take that to the next level. You're saying that because you are a quasi-owner of federal lands via your U.S. citizenship, that that somehow connects you to the wildlife that lives on that land. Well, put aside the Supreme Court case that said that's not true. No matter where wildlife lives, it's held in trust by the state and managed by the state. Take that to the next logical step of, okay, if you think because you're a U.S. citizen, i.e. federal landowner, that that gives you equal rights for wildlife, does that mean you would want Ted Turner, who owns hundreds of thousands of acres here in Montana, that somehow he should be granted exclusive access and tags because of his ownership of wildlife? But isn't that what happens in some states? Well, it doesn't. If you get close enough to Texas, it's, you know, it kind of happens that <laughs> way. I mean, quasi-management of wildlife, it is the landowner in states where it's just about all private. But my point is, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, hey, I should have equal opportunity to that wildlife because it's on federal land. If you say that, then guess what? In Montana, we're two-thirds private land, one-third public. Does that mean two-thirds of our elk hunting opportunity should be granted to the landowners for them to sell and bargain and do what they want with? 
No. The Supreme Court says the wildlife is held in trust for the citizens of that state, not the citizens of the United States, but the citizens of that state within which the wildlife is standing. So, yep. It is what I, it is. Yeah. So, rather than fight and argue about all this stuff, you know, I, I take a little bit of history into account and say, well, that's how it is. How do I make it work for what I, you know, how, how I like to hunt? And in fact, now I'm able to travel and hunt more. And how do I build a bigger pool of elk or a bigger pool of mule deer or a bigger herd of antelope? Because the bigger the herds, the more opportunity we all have. Yep. Man, I feel like I'm You've. giving a sermon on the mound. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Corey. I, my arms are flailing. I can. Only, I wish we had video of this right now. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> People would say, "Someone get a hold of that guy, man. He's about ready to go into orbit." <laughs> but no, I, I think as hunters, it's incumbent upon us to understand what the basic framework of wildlife allocation is in the United States. The fact that the states and the state wildlife agencies are charged with managing that for the citizens of their state. And if they want to grant non-resident opportunity, that's up to each state. And some states are very generous and some are not that generous. But that's the way it is. So rather than fight and argue about that stuff, let's work on better habitat, better public access, better herds of whatever the species is and figure out how we move the ball forward instead of fighting over who gets to play with the ball that day. Yep. All right. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Randy just dropped the mic and walked away. Uh, uh, Yeah. I'll leave you to clean up this mess. I just created Corey. I'll see you later. Uh, I can't even imagine what kind of emails we're going to get. After that, well, you just you, uh, you made all the residents mad, and then you made all the non-residents mad. So you pretty much, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you hopefully didn't make anybody mad. Hopefully, what you did was educated those that didn't realize how it worked. Um, and that was my argument last year. People kept emailing me, "You need to sign this petition. You need to use your platform to get the fishing game to to change non-residents' access to Idaho because they're ruining hunting." And I'm like. How can you even say that? What What's your science and what statistics are you using to back it up? Because the number of non-resident tags for the last 30 years has stayed the same. Sure. There aren't more non-residents hunting the state of Idaho. There might be more non-residents in your specific area, and maybe we need to look at a solution to distribute them, which I think is what the fishing game finally realized and, and attempted to do. It's They certainly didn't do the best job in the world this year, but I think they'll, they'll iron it out. But yeah, just this competition between residents and non-residents, residents own the wildlife. So there yeah. shouldn't be competition. There should be non-residents who are grateful for the management of the wildlife in those states where they're allowed to go and hunt. And residents should recognize the revenue that's brought in by non-residents. And that's why we're giving them access to some of our wildlife and realize that we're on the same team working together here and let's not let's not go straight to the king and say execute them keep them all out of here so we can yeah. have better time because there's going to be downsides to that there's going to be negative that comes from trying to separate everybody and make it 
Only residents can hunt animals only in their states. Yeah, that's that's not progress. We need everybody interested in the cause of of wildlife and 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 wild things in all states. Yep. Regardless of where the wildlife lives and regardless of where the advocate, the hunter lives, we need all of them to feel somewhat vested in the process. And that's where I think there's a lot of value in having non-resident hunters. So, yep. But that's a, uh, I was going to go into another. Tangent <laughs> we, on this, we have probably, uh, what, what should we end with? We should end with, uh, uh, can can I end with uh, a project that the Elk Foundation has been working that on? That sounds a like a really good cap for this right. episode. So the Elk Foundation closed this deal or started working on this deal, had a buy-sell on it for a couple of years. And in November, it finally closed. And it's in south-central Colorado. Uh, and you can go out to rmef.org and see where they have all their projects that they do and what they've done. But this one is really cool. They bought 28 acres where a road went through some private. So they bought that 28 acres that allowed the road to go through now and took down the gate, and they turned it over to the BLM. And there were 8,500 acres of public land back behind that 28 acres that previously you couldn't get to because the former owner had a gate on there, I believe. And uh, so now there's 8,500 acres of public land in Colorado. And I could get really precise and say where it is, but then people get mad at me. Okay. I'm reading this from the Elk Foundation website, so it's out there. But anyhow, they, they just finally got that deal closed and the transfer of the land to the BLM. So that's cool. So cool. That, that is what I'm talking about, building a bigger pie. Because one of the things I'm realizing in Montana is with population growth, a big part of it, hunter behavior, a big part of it being new landowners who just have no interest in allowing hunting. You know, the person, say you're the hedge fund manager on Wall Street, and you come and buy a 40,000-acre ranch in Montana, you bought it from the good old boy who said, yeah, you know, the school teacher and the mechanic and the waitress, you guys all come out hunting here. Well, when the new guy buys it, he's like, no, no hunting. So one thing we are seeing is a lot more of our private lands are closed to hunting, putting more of that resident pressure on the public land. So the density of, I would agree with everybody that the density of hunters on public lands is much higher now than it was 30 years ago. Because of population growth, but also because of displacement. Yep. And so when the Elk Foundation is doing stuff like this, they're identifying 8,500 acres that with buying 28 acres, you can go and get hunters on that ground. That's part of the progress I'm talking about. Building a bigger pie of, of a bigger herd of animals, but also making more land accessible so we can spread out more. Let's do it. Let's do it. That just seems easy. Yeah, but it takes money. It takes advocacy. It takes interested people. And that's why everybody should be a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Yeah, that's true. I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out to my Facebook page and I'm just going to start making a bunch of negative posts to spur people to do something. Really? Yeah. But that, uh, Facebook, 
arguing on Facebook has changed that it has changed the same number of minds as I have shot unicorns. Zero. <laughs> My daughter did shoot a unicorn this year. Just, oh, that's right. Just well, saying. No. Wait, wait, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to encourage people. Do what you can. We all have time, talent. The three, the three T's, they call it. Time, talent, or treasure. We all have some of maybe one of those, you know, some time. Maybe I have some talent. Maybe I have money, but I don't have any time. And if we can allocate one of those that we have, a little bit of our time or a little bit of our talent or a little bit of our treasure to the cause of conservation and public access, that's what's going to help move this forward yep. and keep it where we have this unique model of public hunters. The United States is one of the few countries in the world where we have a public hunting population. How cool is that? Yep. Like I say, what a country. What the greatest country, country on yeah, greatest country in the world. And we won't, can't believe I was born here. We won't get into uh, all of the the uh, direction we're heading down and some of my fears looking at history and other countries that used to have what we have that no longer do. But yeah. just know uh, yeah. as of right now, we live in a pretty good place. Yeah. So that's the high note to leave it on, Corey. There you go. You did it. We weren't, we weren't born in, you know some city of 45 million people or some country of a billion or whatever, or we weren't born into a country where nobody owns firearms or nobody gets to go on. Yeah. We're lucky. Yep. In fact, I'm, I, I feel so lucky just thinking about that. I'm going to take my wife out and we're going to go and get a drive through at the dairy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you were going to go hunting. I said, you've been doing that uh, for the last four months. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I figured she deserved a Dairy Queen after, you know, taking care of everything while I've been gone for a hundred days. See, that's yeah. just not fair. We don't have Dairy Queens where I'm at. Yeah, that's why I would I wouldn't move there if there wasn't a Dairy Queen. I got two of them within a half hour drive of my house. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, right, right there is a, your property has been devalued heavily. Oh you yeah. A dairy oh, if we put a Dairy Queen here in town, my property value would probably double. Probably, but I would so, I would spend all of that value at Dairy Queen, so it wouldn't, wouldn't gain me anything. Uh, well, I don't. We didn't get to that many questions here, but I think we started down a path where this isn't going to be the first podcast you're going to hear this spring or this winter about these these very heated arguments or debates about allocation of opportunity costs whatever um send us your emails about what people are thinking about it i mean where do they go elk talk podcast and click the contact us is that that's it what they do yeah all right and uh hopefully they'll do that and oh we can't forget until the end of january january 31st 2021 anyone who signs up for the go hunt insider which you should if you want to have all the best information at your fingertips and 3d maps and everything, uh, everyone who signs up or uh, signs up between now and then, or is even an active insider member who had previously used our promo code, they're in the drawing for an RMEF life membership. So cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, to go back to our 
conversation on Idaho, Go Hunt has all of the statistics broken out by unit in all the states, even for the over-the-counter tags like we're talking about. So these non-residents, if you're, oh. you know, if your unit got sold out and there's no tag left there, there are still over 4,000 tags available in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 additional units right now in Idaho. And you could research all 13 of those units, even though they're over the counter. It's not a limited entry type of a thing. Over the counter, you can see the statistics on it and make an educated choice on which of those units are now your backup unit because you didn't get the tag in your unit of choice. There you go. You, you you should be a salesman, Corey. I you 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 find value everywhere. I do. <laughs> Maybe that's why I, I have no money. It's because I find I, value you everywhere. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. That's uh, you know, it's so easy to read a headline and think, "Oh, the sky's falling." You know what? Usually, you should disregard the headline because it's probably most often it's written by somebody who doesn't know their butt from third base. <laughs> and do your own research be as, as though go hunt used to have this motto called be your own hunting consultant and that's that's what i say you should don't put this in the hands of somebody else do it yourself but i've been doing it since 1995 i can't believe i've been applying in multiple states since 1995 i hope my wife doesn't listen to this podcast because she'll do the quick math and she'll know how much money I've rat-holed into my hunting budget that she never heard about. You know, I think and, our wives already know. I think it's kind of like a teenager. They think they're getting away with things that their parents don't know. And their parents, just, <laughs> their parents just sit there and just shake their head. And they're like, okay, yeah, yeah. Go over there and help the old lady get her car battery charged again. We know what you're really doing. But I think our wives are the same <laughs> way. They, they say, yes, honey, that's great. That's so good that you're providing organic meat for us and filling our freezer. And it's not even costing us a thing. And in the back of their mind, they're saying, I know exactly how much you're spending. I know how many days you're gone. Yeah. Yeah. That, perfect example of that was yesterday. <laughs> My wife says, hey, uh, you got a call from the taxidermist. Your mountain caribou is ready to pick up. I want to come with you <laughs> when you pick it up. Like, she never wants to go yeah. with the taxidermist. So her and the dog jump in the truck. I go out there, you know, oh, then a beautiful day, you know, trying to change the subject, thinking the eventuality is she's going to ask me how much did that cost. And usually I pay cash for these things <laughs> because then she doesn't know. Well, she hands me the checkbook and says, here, I'm like, wait a second. She's going to let this come out of the household budget. There is a catch there. there I'm walking into a booby trap here and I, I'm so dumb as the husband of 30 years. I'm going to walk right in there anyhow because the household budget is going to pay for my mountain caribou. You're thinking you're the winner the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I go in there, write the check, come out this oh, unbelievable amount. I, I'm so impressed with it. Wrap it in blankets, put it in the back of the truck, hand her the checkbook. And she doesn't even open it to see because, you know, they got the – the duplicate copy in there <laughs> and i'm like all right she, she wants a new car something's up here so 
we drive home. It's about 25 minutes to my house. And we get about five minutes away from the house, and she opens up the checkbook and looks. It's like, huh, she says the amount. <laughs> She's just quiet. I'm like, uh-uh. This is the bait. This is where the trap is going to spring. She's waiting for me to respond to her comment of, hmm, $850. She didn't say anything more. We get in the house, and all yesterday afternoon, I'm walking around on pins and needles like, all right, what is it going to be? Well, this goes back to a podcast we did previously. This morning over coffee, I find out that she's buying a greenhouse, thanks to my buddy Corey, who built his wife a greenhouse. See? It works out. See, that's a positive. You made that all sound like it was a negative conversation, but you got a caribou mount, and you didn't even have to build a greenhouse. No, but I got to buy one, and guess who's going to guess who's gonna haul all the dirt in there? Guess who's got to run the, you know, make sure the electricity and everything else I'm, like, I'm guessing it's not going to be you. I'm guessing you're just going to have to find somebody to do it. That's what I would like to do. <laughs> but I don't know that there's a professional greenhouse maintenance person that you can hire. So not only am I going to pay about $5,000. So the point of this is my caribou mount did not cost $850. Nope. It cost about $5,850. <laughs> because she showed me. On the internet, some of these greenhouse kits that you can get, by the time I pay somebody to put it together, run the power to it and all the other things she wants. Now she wants an underground, uh, like we're supposed to run uh, water to it. I'm like, well, that's what buckets are for. We got a, a frost-free well pump right out here. That's what buckets are for. <laughs> oh, no. It's going to be a $5,000 bill. So this is how dumb. I, I knew I was walking into a trap. But did you think I could see what the trap was? Nope. Walked right into it. $5,000 later, my wife, I'm sure she's going to have a greenhouse that makes the neighbors just envy. All because my buddy Corey on a podcast one day, my wife overheard him say, yeah, built my wife a greenhouse this summer. (laughs) It's not my fault. So I'm now getting to the point where I don't want to be handy. I don't want to have power tools. I'm about ready to get rid of any friends who are handy. <laughs> and you are one of the handier friends that I have. Yes, uh, so I'm at the top of your list. You, you, you're on thin ice, my friend. Yeah. I mean, you might just have to split this greenhouse with me. Well, I was just—I was going to make another recommendation. So my wife also wanted a garden shed, and she also wanted a chicken coop. No way! I built a three-in-one. So half of the building is greenhouse, the other half is garden shed, and then on the end of it is the chicken coop. My neighbors all have chickens. Yeah. I live out in the country. And much like my neighbor to the north, his dog coming and pooping in my yard, chickens are a bloody mess, to use the the UK way of saying it. They they crap on everything. They do. they don't crap over on my neighbor's yard who owns them. They're crapping all over my yard. Yep. So maybe I got you're saying get my own chickens and send my chickens over to crap in their yard? Totally. Okay. All right. Well, and that's part of what the, the chicken coop that we built and 
there's a run attached to it also. So our chickens don't just completely range free. Mm-hmm. So yeah, oh, I'll, send, well, I'll send you the, the plans that I drew up to, no. to build it. And no, I'll, I'll, don't, I'll send don't them to your wife. <laughs> no, you know that my wife handles my email. So don't, if you send something attention, Kim, I'm, uh, uh, this podcast will be a solo podcast. <laughs> I was cussing you so bad over coffee this morning. Uh, when, when I, I'm like, well, Corey just cost me 2500 bucks, But I got a caribou mount. There I'm you like, go. See? Yeah. I'll go broke at that, uh, saving that kind of money. <laughs> I thought I, I would have been way better off to pay cash out of my sock drawer money. Yeah, you would have. So, but, how, I don't know how we got on this topic. Man, I, don't I need apologize. To, well, they get their money back again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, folks, send us more comments. We we want to know what topics, what ideas you want to hear us talk about. Yep. Or questions. Send us some. <laughs> we we managed to burn an hour and a half today off one question that led down. I'm not even going to yeah. try to count the rabbit holes. Yeah, and in the process, we've managed to offend every resident, every non-resident. <laughs> Did we forget anybody? Well, if we if we include residents and non-residents, that pretty much covers everybody. There you go. Well, I appreciate that folks would even listen to us and our craziness. <laughs> hope, hope everybody's doing well and they're healthy and happy and they got Christmas coming up. A lot to be grateful for. Yep, and already planning next year's elk hunt. So I know it's not, we're gonna have to jump. We're gonna have to jump into those podcasts pretty soon no about kidding. how to draw on each state. No kidding. Huh. Yep. And then uh, when when are you gonna release your uh, destination elk thing? I don't know. We had a really good plan. Yeah. Yeah. Until we told everybody about it, and then they didn't like it. So really, yeah, Why? well. Because it's free? Well, it was free. I mean, it is free, but we, we said we were going to give the online, the University of Elk Hunting online course members get a sneak peek at it and give them first access mm-hmm. to it. And then it'll be yeah. free for the general public at a later time, being probably mid-July, which is when the analytics are great on YouTube and all of that. But mm-hmm. there's a few things we didn't think of. And and uh, I am definitely a, a listener to feedback. And we did mm-hmm. get some negative feedback, which I knew we would. You know, Corey's just greedy. He, it's all about money. You know, those sort of comments, which I just delete because it's not true at all. Yeah. But, um, you know, people were saying it's just so convenient November through March to be able to sit down with my family each night and spend 30 straight days mm-hmm. for an hour family time watching this. And that's become kind of tradition. Uh, the other thing is with us putting it just on the website, it's harder to watch it in 4K if it's on YouTube. It's just an app on most TVs now that you just go out there and watch yeah. it. So some of those considerations were, uh, were definitely taken into account, and we may be revising our launch plan in the near future. Okay. Okay. So, <clears throat> yeah. Well, to appease the voice of the of those who we are trying to appease <laughs> yeah no that's, that's that's good i like that yeah 
So since, since you got me over here offending everybody, you better be doing double duty no over there kidding. and trying to soothe everybody. <laughs> yeah, Randy Randy goes out and and does the damage, and I have to come through and do damage control. So completely yeah, changing you're the, our plan just to, to make up. You're the cleanup guy. Yep. <clears throat> Yeah. I wake up every morning. My motto is I'm not happy till you're not happy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that no, for a minute. <laughs> I don't, but I, I had a CPA client who he was complaining about uh, a certain person and he told me that. I'm like, what did you say? He said, oh, he's not happy till I'm not happy. <laughs> I'm like, that's a good one. That is. I'm going to borrow that one. Uh, uh, well, Corey, thanks so much for your time today. Likewise. Um, and, uh, let you back. You probably got to go coach some basketball teams. We're on our way. And <laughs> just just ahead to the last podcast, we keep just adding on rabbit holes here, but it is important because mm-hmm. we told people last time that I was coaching the JV team and we, yeah. uh, we have to play the number two varsity team in the state uh, mm-hmm. with our JV team because of the varsity being quarantined. And we did a bunch of scouting on their season last year because they don't have very many games this year, but they did have one game and we watched it and they have recruited new people that have come from the 5A school district. They have a 6'4 kid that dunked like six times in their last game. He brought some of his friends with him. I mean, we're, we're walking into a potential bloodbath out on the court tonight. So, well, you know, I, I grew up in northern Minnesota where hockey was king, and uh, I played basketball. Uh, my theory was if I had five fouls and I didn't use them all in the course of a game, I didn't get my money's worth. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes with big guys, you can take care of that stuff with a sharp elbow or, you know. It's way easier to make them or, or way more – it's a better strategy to make them shoot free throws than to give them dunks and layups. I don't think anybody when I was in the game ever got a freebie. They were making free throws. And and every once in a while, the ref doesn't call the foul. I'm looking at the ref like, wow, that's good. (laughs) That's like a mulligan there. I just about broke his arm. And, uh, but so there's other strategies to combat that you know, recruiting all the local ringers from the big 5A high school or something. Yep. Good. So, all right. Well, I wish you guys luck. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, report back, okay. I'm sure. I was going to say, let me know how it goes. If you need if you need a little bit of coaching on how to use those five fouls, <laughs> that's, that, that's where I come in. Excellent. No, I think we'll be okay. We've got 10 players and there's... there's that's 50 fouls. That's exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, even to keep five on the floor, you can. You still got twenty five fouls you can give. I, I, that's right. You know, I, I think my coach looked at me. I was the start. I was one of the five starters, and I think he's just like, "Well, we'll play Newberg until he runs out of fouls." <laughs> All right. So you got to play the first quarter of every game. Then it sounds like sometimes. Oh yeah, there were a couple of refs. That, you know, in small towns, you kind of get the same refs time after time, and. There were a couple of refs that are like, man, I, all I had to do is look at them and I got a foul. And, uh, but, oh, well, it was fun. We were, we were a pretty good team. My junior year, we didn't have any seniors. We went 16 and three. In my senior year, we went 
27 and one until we got to the state tournament. Wow. And in, in Minnesota at that time, there was class double a, which was the 128 biggest schools. And then the other 480 some schools were single a. So you had to win a 64 team tournament to go to the state tournament. So my senior year, we won that 64 team tournament. So we go to this Minneapolis we we thought we were pretty good. That's really but we cool. didn't win. We didn't win the state tournament, but I managed to get knocked cold in the in the consolation game. <laughs> the scar under my eye. I'm a great big dude. He he got even with me for all those fouls I gave people. I all I remember is laying on the floor of the St. Paul Civic Center and everything spinning around, and I got blood running down my cheek. <laughs> like man, I played four years of football and didn't get hurt. I'm like that. Uh, uh, well, basketball uh, is a is a contact yeah. sport, and my daughter found yeah. that out. She hurt her knee last week, and we got the MRI done yesterday, and she completely tore her ACL. Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Oh. So, but my my connection, my point, I was making about hockey being king in northern Minnesota. We played a pretty rough brand of basketball. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> like if you ever watch a movie slap shot yeah i can't say we were ever putting on the foil you know when the hansen brothers are putting on the foil because they're getting ready to fight we, we never got to that point but you you wanted to wear a mouth guard you know you know all's fair in love and war <laughs> so we better go we had better Man, I, I hope your daughter's knee gets well. It will. She's got she's got elk to hunt this fall. Yep, she'll. Uh, she, she, fall. She's wanting to shed hunt this spring, so we're uh, we're trying to get her in in the next week or two to get it cut on mm-hmm. and sewed back up. So darn sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, but. she's a sophomore, so she's got more time. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here, everyone. Sorry for all the tangents, but that's how it goes in the cold of winter. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we'll have more <laughs> real elk hunting topics to talk about here really soon. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Yeah. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>